Welcome to Church Ahead, the weekly Christian podcast talking about big questions facing the future of church with Rev L all the way from the north of England. Episode 3, The Biggest Turning Point in My Life Becoming a Christian, giving your life to Christ, conversion, asking Jesus into your life was the language in my part of the church to describe the crisis turning point of faith. It's generally recognised that most people come to faith gradually rather than suddenly. But for me, there was a key moment when something significant clicked into place. I'm going to tell you today about what I call my conversion. 1976, age 12, was a great year for me. A long, hot summer of endless playing out, and then an autumn which felt like a coming of age. I started going to watch Manchester City Football Club on Saturday afternoons. I started going to pop concerts. My first was Rod Stewart. I felt as though I was a teenager before the number hit. I felt the world was coming my way. At church... I started confirmation class, which opened my eyes to the weird and wonderful things Christians believe. Church Lads Brigade was fun on Friday night. Sunday morning church was better than nothing, and nothing was the main alternative in those days. And best of all, Sunday evening, we had a new youth group at the home of Mr and Mrs Bowker, who were good at games and really took an interest in us. There were boys who were really good mates and nice girls who I wanted to be around. At home, my mother and grandmother used the word hypocrites when they talked about church. I think my mother tried going to Mother's Union but felt snubbed because she was divorced. But I didn't see much hypocrisy. What I saw was a lively social world that was better than school and more fun than anything else I'd seen. I saw good people who cared about me. I'd heard the evangelical gospel more than once. Students from Cape Henry Bible College, Cumbria, in school assembly. Children's Christian Crusade, teeny bot rallies at South Chatterton Methodist Church. And a couple of vicar evangelists who'd preached at our church. I got the basic idea. You were supposed to confess your sins and ask Jesus to come into your life, and then you would be a new person. And you could call yourself a Christian, which meant more than just going to church. So the idea of conversion was sitting around there in the background. It was a Sunday evening before Christmas, and we'd been out carol singing when we went back to the Bowker's little terraced home, as we did most Sundays. What was different this time was the presence of a young man called Les, who was a keen evangelical Christian, home from the holidays from America where he lived and was involved with the Christian brethren. He gave a little pep talk about his faith, and that was quite unusual. He'd been to my school, and I'm not sure I'd ever heard someone from my background talking so openly about their religious experience. We listened politely, but we were more interested in Mrs. Bowker's chocolate rice crispy cakes. 
So when the spread was brought out, we dived in. And who should stop us in our tracks but Les? Don't you think we should thank the Lord for this food? He said. Well, I thought that was just a piety too far. And surrounded by my pals, with all the giddiness of Christmas, I couldn't help myself. (coughs) I sniggered. So Les said his prayer of grace. We began the food. And then who do you think he buttonholed for the next ten minutes? I came clean and told him that despite the giggles, I was considering becoming a Christian myself. He told me all about his life growing up in Oldham and how Christ had changed him for the better, how he found comfort and peace from the Bible. And he took an interest in me. He didn't just talk, he asked questions, and he listened to me as I explained my own hesitation about becoming a Christian. He urged me to make the move. Next day was Monday, the first day of the school holiday, and I wrestled with it all day until at ten minutes before ten, on the night before my thirteenth birthday, I knelt down by the side of my bed and I prayed the prayer. I confessed my sins to God and asked Jesus to come into my heart. And then I thought, what do I do now? I know. Christians are supposed to read the Bible every day. So I got out my authorised version New Testament and read the first chapter, Matthew chapter 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judas, and on it went. And I got to the end of the genealogy and I thought, I wonder what the word begat means. So not a great start, but I read a bit most days after that. So what was the difference? What difference did it make and what did it mean? When I went back to school in the new year, in 1977, I was still the lisping cross-eyed kid with two left feet on the football field, not doing very well with girls, bumping along the bottom in most lessons. So no change there. I don't think I walked into school with the glow of the Holy Spirit. But yes, I was now a Bible reader. I don't imagine anyone would have noticed, but looking back, that was quite a life change in itself. I suppose I paid a bit more attention in church, and I wanted God in my life. In the spring of 1977, I was confirmed I remember this wonderful flood of peace when the bishop placed his hands on my head. I was aware that I took it a bit more seriously than the other kids. My grandma bought me an illustrated book of the film Jesus of Nazareth, which gripped me with the graphic photographs of Robert Powell as Jesus suffering. But what interests me now, looking back on all of this, is what was really going on. Those phrases put into my mouth, such as, confess my sins, ask Jesus into my life. What did they really mean to me? What does it mean when a 12-year-old boy confesses his sin? And in what sense was Jesus not already in my life? I certainly don't think a child of hell was becoming a son of heaven. There was no transaction in the divine ledger.
at something much more human and slightly sadder than when I shaped up this story into a testimony performance to dine out on in the years to come. The key issue is sin, but not in the way you might expect. Many young people feel pressure to manufacture sins, to make their conversion more dramatic and genuine. If I'm going to be a saved sinner, I'd better make sure I bring enough sins to the party. Well, that was never my problem. I was not short of sins to confess. I had quite an unsettled childhood. I used to get into trouble at school, and my school reports would usually leave my mother crying for several days. I'll quote you from my first year junior school report in full from the class teacher, Mrs Ashton, who was herself an active church person. David is a naughty, careless, untidy boy who does not deserve his exam position. One teacher made me wear a sign saying, I kick, I kick, I must be a donkey. Another one banned the class from talking to me for a whole term. The headmistress catching me in a water fight in the boys' toilets, poured a watering can over my head, making me stand outside her office all afternoon in the puddle of water. So when I was told to confess my sin, it wasn't hard to think of something. And when I told my testimony in my twenties, it wasn't hard to find some juicy examples for the before part of the before and after story. But I don't think that when I knelt down by the side of my bed to confess my sin, it was really sin I was confessing. I was definitely handing something over to God and crying out for help. But no, not sin. I don't think it was sin. I think it was the sadness of shame, which is different some shame about being the class clown, but mainly this. I was ashamed about growing up without a father, with my mother and grandmother who couldn't control me. I was ashamed of my home and my family. I was ashamed that we were poor. But most of all, I was ashamed of being fatherless. It was several years since I'd seen my father and it seemed increasingly likely that he was not interested in me. When you've not had a birthday card or a present for a number of years, it becomes harder to keep the faith alive. I don't think it's any great surprise that meeting a young man who was somewhere between an older brother figure and a father figure, and then a middle-aged male bishop performing quite an intimate ritual, was what cut through. The talk, of course, was all about a heavenly father, but what I was yearning for was a human father. In many ways, it's probably just as well that I didn't know what that word begat means as I started reading the Bible for the first time, because it would have rubbed in my own inability to say something meaningful about who begat me. Yes, I did, shed a tear this week when I sat down to think myself back into the mind of that 12, 13-year-old boy. My mother died last year, and I couldn't really talk openly about this while she was alive, because I didn't want to upset her. 
I've thought this for many years, but this is the first time I've felt able to say it. Sin is a small word, but a big, dangerous world of its own. When we get into the stride of these podcasts, we'll look very carefully at sin, what it means and what it does to the Christian gospel. So yes, I was converted, thoroughly and properly converted. It was perhaps the most important turning point of my life. I had crossed a line. I had changed sides. I'd switched from laughing at Christians from the outside to becoming a Christian myself. I was now on the inside. A scoffer had become a disciple. I was on a new track on the way to a very different life. I've never regretted this decision. But what was at the heart of it? Was it really just an adolescent boy learning to feel less bad about himself? Thank you very much for listening and please join me next week when I tell you the story of how I became a theologian.